Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of James to the Messianic Jews that are scattered throughout the eastern Mediterranean region. We said in session one, where we looked at the backstory to the letter, that James really reads like a sermon in print, and he's offering wise advice on living faithfully to Jesus, and it's pretty direct and hard-hitting. Well, in this session, we want to look at the first major section of James, James 1, 2 through 12. And we see that here. After his very brief introduction, James begins in James 1, verse 2, with no preliminaries. He just jumps right in with the first section of advice, very direct advice to us about trials. He's going to offer really a godly or wise perspective on trials. And so the whole context of 1, 2 through 12 revolves around that key idea of trials. You see that word show up in 1 verse 2 where he talks about encountering various trials. And then in 1.12, you see James say that blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. And so from 1.2 to 1.12, the whole section is about trials. That's important for us to note because when we read uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 about asking for wisdom, it's set against the backdrop of trials. And when we read chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 about rich and poor, it's set against that backdrop or in the context of trials. And so we need to make sure we hear this whole section really against that backdrop or in that context of facing adversity and hardship and suffering and difficulty and even opposition and persecution in life, what James calls various trials. That's what this whole section is about. The question he is answering is, how should we respond to trials if we're going to be faithful to Jesus? How should we respond to the adversities we face in life? And the answer he gives in a nutshell is this. We should rejoice, pray for wisdom, and adopt an eternal perspective. That's, in a short, really, if you look at the whole thing, the answer that he gives to how we should respond to trials. And so he jumps in with this advice. He begins simply by saying, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Notice the word, consider. That's a thinking word. It's a perspective word, and it's a command. So James is commanding us to consider our trials as joy. In other words, he's really commanding how we think about them or what perspective we have on them. We can't control our circumstances. We can't change our circumstances. But we can control our mind and how we think about our circumstances. And that's what James instructs us to do here. He tells us to consider it all joy. We know from elsewhere in the New Testament that joy is really a central virtue of the Christian life. We see in the book of Acts that when unbelievers became believers in Jesus, one of the things that marked them was joy. And in the moment of their conversion even, they were filled with joy. We know, for example, from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 that uh, one piece of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, that the Spirit wants to produce joy in our life. Uh, Paul also commands us in Philippians chapter 4 to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The Apostle Peter speaks of uh, rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy is a central virtue of the Christian life. 
And here we're commanded, instructed to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Let's think about this joy for a second before we wrestle with why we should consider trials joy, but let's just talk about joy. Joy, in the New Testament sense, is this. It's a pervasive sense of delight based on a secure relationship with God. That is, it's it's a pervasive sense. that It's not just passing. It's not just occasional. It's spread throughout every part of our being, and it's ongoing and regular. It's pervasive, and it's based on a secure relationship with God. It's founded on, grows out of the fact that God is our source of joy, and our relationship with Him is secure and uh trustworthy. And so we have a pervasive sense of delight based on a secure relationship with God. One of the things that I think is really, really important for us as we reflect on joy in the New Testament is this, that God is the most joyful person in the universe. And we often fail to think of him that way. Jesus was the most joyful human who ever lived. And we often fail to think of him that way. In fact, when I was in graduate school, I had an entire semester course, three hours a week for 15 weeks, so 45 hours studying the character and the work of God. The class was simply called Doctrine of God. And nowhere in that course did we ever talk about joy as an attribute of God. I was struck by that, and I actually went to the library and opened up dozens of books on the character of God. Not a single one of them actually talked about joy as an attribute of God. We fail to recognize that God is the most joyful person in the universe, and that he wants to share that joy with us, and thus this pervasive sense of delight grows out of this secure relationship with God. In fact, Jesus, God in the flesh, the most joyful human that ever walked on the earth, the night before he was betrayed, told us to abide in him and he would abide in us. And at the end of that speech in John 15, 11, Jesus said, I have spoken these things to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be overflowing. And if Jesus didn't radiate a desirable kind of joy, he could have never said those words with any sort of integrity to the men who had spent the last three and a half years following him all over Palestine, right? So joy is a character trait of Jesus and a character trait of God the Father and a character trait of the Holy Spirit. And they, together as one God, want to impart their joy to us. And so um, we are called to be people of joy all throughout the New Testament. And here, James is essentially saying to us, even in the midst of difficulty and in adversity, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, why should you consider it joy when life is hard? It's not because we like pain, not because, you know, we're like Stoics who's like self-discipline and pain and all that. It's not that per se. It's because we know something. And that's where James goes in verse 3. In verse 3, James says, Uh, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing 
That's a participle in Greek, and it has a causal sense here, meaning because you know. That's the way we should read that. You count it joy because you know something. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so you know there is some positive benefits to the trials that you experience. Those trials provide an opportunity for the testing of your faith. And that word testing has the sense of to test to see if genuine, to test to see if authentic. And to pass that test means you're approved, which is what we see in uh, 1 verse 12 a little bit later in this section. And so the idea of testing here is your faith is the metal of your faith is being tested to see if it's genuine and authentic. And so the testing of your faith leads to the refining and the purification of your faith, and it produces, he says, endurance. Endurance is the idea of staying put under pressure, standing firm under pressure. It's the same word translated persevere in verse 12. We're talking about persevering or enduring under difficulties. And when you go through difficulties, it's an opportunity for your faith to be tested and refined and for you to gain spiritual strength so that you can endure difficulties. Not only that, James goes on in verse 4 and says, now let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so these trials have this ability to shape and refine your character. And so as you stay put in the midst of trial and you remain faithful, you can uh, endurance can have its perfect result, he says, its perfect outcome. What is that perfect or whole outcome that endurance is looking for? Well, it's that you may become perfect and complete. Mature is the idea of perfect. Don't get hung up with the word perfect. It's to have reached its goal. It's to fulfill its design. That's the idea, that you're living the way you were designed and created to live. You're a mature, whole, complete human being. So as you endure and stay put in the the midst of trials, you become a whole, mature, complete human being, lacking in nothing. The idea is that we become completely rounded out as a Christian and have no gaping gaps left. It's not that we're perfect or never make a mistake or never stumble. It's that in total, our character is such that we are a whole, mature Christian person. And so we see that perseverance or endurance isn't so much an end in itself, but it's a means to a greater end. The greater end is maturity and wholeness in Christ. And that's why we can count it joy in the midst of difficulties, because those difficulties help refine and train and strengthen us so that we become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So the basic advice James gives in verses 2 through 4 is to count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know it will help you become the person God created you to be. Verses 5 through 8 then takes up a kind of a sub-issue, a subtopic under this idea of how to respond to trials. Remember, we said the whole section from 2 to Uh, verse 2 to verse 12 is all about trials. Well, verses 5 through 8 is a, a subsection within that really about trials. And the connection between the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5 is the word lack. Verse 4 ends with lacking in nothing. 
verse 5 in, or begins with, but if you lack wisdom. And that's the bridge from verses 4 to 5. The idea is, seems to be this. When you are tried, you may lack wisdom. What should you do if that's the case? Verses 5 through 8 addresses that issue. And so if in the midst of trials you lack wisdom, what should you do? Well, here's James' advice. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and remember, wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. Knowledge, you could have knowledge of the facts, but you don't know what to do with those facts. Wisdom is applied knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to know what to do with the information you have. Wisdom is the ability to live skillfully, make good decisions, and to know the best course of action. Well, in the midst of difficulties and in the midst of trials, sometimes the the hardest thing is, I'm not even sure what I should do. I don't know how to respond to this person. I don't know how to respond to the circumstance. I don't know the best choice to make. I'm not even sure what God would want me to do here. That's lacking wisdom. And so James now is addressing that issue. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so, in a nutshell, if you lack wisdom in the midst of difficulties and adversity, what should you do? You should ask God for it. That's James's basic advice. Let him ask of God. And notice how God is described. God is the one who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Bear in mind what we're asking for. We're asking here in context for wisdom. And God gives wisdom generously and without reproach. And so God loves to give wisdom. He is generous in dispensing wisdom. He wants to help us learn how to live wisely in life. And so God gives to all people generously, and he gives without reproach. What is meant by without reproach? Well, it's without finding fault. It's not as if God is going to be shaking his head and thinking, oh, my lands, John, you're such an idiot. You, you don't even know what to do in this situation? All right, I guess if I have to, I'll give you some wisdom. No, God doesn't give wisdom with reproach. He gives it without reproach. And so if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. God will give it generously. He's not going to look down on you and think you're an idiot for asking for it. And the wisdom will be given to you. That's the promise is that God will give wisdom. Then he goes on in verse 6 and says, Now when you ask, there's a certain way you need to ask. How do you need to ask? Let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so verses 6 through 8 really deal with how we should ask, and the answer is, well, we need to ask in faith. Let's talk about that phrase for a second. Um, sometimes I think at a popular level, we hear the phrase ask in faith and we think we've got to whip up this strong sense of earnest belief. Oh, I really believe, I really believe. I don't quite think that's what James has in mind. I think it's probably better to, to understand that phrase in the sense of in faithfulness, that the word faith and the word faithfulness are the same word in Greek. And so the word faith can mean loyalty as well as believing. 
And I think here that idea of loyalty is probably stronger, particularly when it's contrasted with doubt, being double-minded, and all of that. And so the idea of asking in faith is asking in loyalty to God, that in the midst of this trial, while you're having a difficult time, and it would be really easy to get frustrated with God and want to toss in the towel, you remain faithful, you remain loyal, you ask from a heart and a posture of faithfulness and loyalty to God. That's the idea. You ask without doubting. Doubting doesn't mean here the idea of like, intellectual doubting per se, it asks with this, as he says, uh, it asks without being double-minded. Doubting is being double-minded. Doubting in context is being unstable, where you're like, you know, if God doesn't do this for me, I'm done with him. That would be the idea of doubting here. And so you ask in loyalty and faithfulness to God without being double-minded, without doubting. The idea of doubting is internal wrangling and disputing. The basic idea of the word doubting is here to be at odds with oneself. And so it has to do more with this internal conflict rather than settled trust. Um, That's the contrast. And so you ask with settled trust, not with internal wrangling about whether you're going to continue to follow Jesus or not. Um, Why? Well, because notice what he says. For the one who doubts, the one who is divided, who is split in his loyalty, and who's like got one foot loyal to God and one foot disloyal to God, and he's like, if God doesn't come through, then I'm done with the whole thing. The one who doubts like that is like, here's the image, like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This person is unstable. This person is just blown here and there. Life comes this way and they react that way. And they're just, you just never, they're just unpredictable because they're not settled in their loyalty and trust to God in Christ. And so they're driven and tossed by the surf of the sea uh, all over the place. And he says in verse 7, for let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. A person who is like doubting like that, who is unsettled in their trust, not only can they expect not to receive wisdom from God when they ask, they, they really don't have any confidence to that God will ever give them anything because they're so unsettled in their loyalty to God. They are, he says in verse 8, a double-minded person. This word double-minded is only used here and in James chapter 4. It's the only place in the New Testament's used. And it really refers to that. It's like two-souled is the idea. It's split. This person is two-souled. Half their soil soul is interested in God and half their soul is disloyal to God. They're split. And so they are unstable in all their ways. And so James says, if you lack wisdom in the midst of adversity, what should you do? Well, you should ask God for it in settled trust, knowing that God keeps his promises. We may not always understand what God is up to. We may not always like what God is up to, but we know God is good and God is faithful and God is wise. And so we trust him and we ask for wisdom on how to respond to our trials and what to do in the midst of the situation. So let's summarize what James has said up to this point. He has told us that uh, we're going to experience various difficulties or trials in life, and we should consider those as joy. Our perspective on them should be such that we respond to them from a posture of joy, not because we like pain, but because we like to be mature and whole and complete, and trials are part of the process God uses to help us become that. 
He's also said that sometimes in the midst of difficulties, we, we're not sure how to respond. We're not sure what choices to make. We lack wisdom. And if that's the case, we ask God for it, knowing that God generously and gladly gives that wisdom to those who trust him faithfully. And so we should respond to God and to our difficulties with settled trust, even in the midst of difficulties of life, because all of that will help us become a mature person. Now, where James is going to go in the the next little bit is he is going to uh, deal with a specific kind of trial and offer some perspective on that. It's to that that we turn in our next session.